0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I was at football practice and I was captain of the team at the time. And the police came out. We were probably about, you know, almost a hundred guys on our team. This is Southern California football. It's like a, it's a big program. And I turned to one of my teammates who sold weed. (laughs) And was like, oh, you're like, you think they're coming for you? <laughs> I think, Do you want me to like, you know, stress? i give you a head start. Um, And they come over and they talk to my coaches and the coaches look over perplexed and, and signal to me. And I think they're going to like ask for my help with something. And I walk over and they grab me, turn me around and cuff me in front of my entire team and take me in. The story was that my mother had called the police and told them that I had run her over. In our family's car, which was 100% you know, fabricated. It was, again, something that happened to her in like a you know, delirious hallucination, most likely.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Dylan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks, Trini. I'm super pumped
2: up to jam with you today. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your story by way of our mutual friend and former podcast, Jess Matan Grafell and he told me that you were the founder of Mindbloom, and then I remembered the hundreds of ads for Mindbloom that had rolled through my Instagram feed, and I knew that I immediately wanted to talk to you. So I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work, and how did that end up shaping where you've ended up in, uh, with both your life and
1: your career? Uh, my parents had a major effect on uh, my motivation for building Mindbloom, and really my entire career and life journey. Um. I think as many Americans are starting to learn, uh, mental health is largely considered the number one public health crisis in the United States today. Uh, Overdose and suicides have become the top two leading causes of death for Americans under 45. Uh, Depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. Um, And what we see is that a lot of our existing treatment options just aren't getting the job done for people. And so the problem is getting worse and worse every day. Uh, And the reason I bring that up is because I grew up in a family that was obliterated by the mental health crisis. Uh, So my mother and my sister were both severely mentally ill. They both had schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially schizophrenia and another mood disorder, uh, as well as uh, on and off again problems with addiction. Uh, And for both of them, we tried all the traditional treatment options, antidepressants, antidepressants, anti-anxiety uh, meds, talk therapy, group therapy, rehab, treatment facilities. Uh, and unfortunately, none of them worked for either of them. Uh, and my mother died of a fentanyl overdose after being homeless for 15 years. Uh, my sister also died of a fentanyl overdose shortly after that and would have been homeless as well. Uh, and the reason I bring that up when you ask about what they did um, is that I think part of the challenges that we had as a family trying to treat them uh, stemmed from our inability to access care in addition to the treatments not being effective enough that we tried. Uh, so my adoptive stepfather who raised me is my hero. Uh, he uh, was a city bus driver and a mailman before that. Uh, and so we were a working class family in the 70% of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Psychiatry is the least insured specialty. Um, and we've made a lot of progress, you know, over the last 10, 20, 30 years in terms of helping people access behavioral health care treatments, but still not good enough. Um, and so for us, you know, we had trouble figuring out what to do because there was stigma and we you know, were a really highly uh, educated family. I was the first person my family to go to college by light year. Um, we had trouble affording it, um, and a lot of things we tried didn't work for them. Uh, so, Yeah big motivation for me building a mental health care company uh, was to bring more effective treatments to people to save them before they're past the event horizon. My mother, my sister you know, uh, were at one point and to really increase access to those treatments.
2: How old were you when both your mother and sister passed?
1: Mm-hmm. So there's sort of past in like when I functionally lost them. Um, yeah. So my, my sister died almost a year ago and my mother was a year before that. Um, but I lost him when I was like a child. Um, so my mother was, you know, as long as I can remember, very mentally ill. And by the time I was probably, you know, seven, eight, nine, like very young, um, she was so, you know, sort of severely mentally ill that, uh, the house was very, uh, chaotic and, uh, violent. Um, and, uh, very quickly I just sort of distanced myself from her when I was around 16 years old, it became so bad, uh, that ultimately, you know, my father who believed that he needed to sort of stay together for the kids, which, you know, he now realizes was, uh, a, uh, you know, fallacy, um, the wrong strategy. Um, we had to leave, um, and she was, you know, homeless shortly after that, but she didn't have us to you know, support her. yeah. Uh, and my my sister was about the same. Dropped out of school, and she was in eighth grade, and um, you know went to live with my mother when we left because she wanted that freedom. As somebody who was having her own issues, and you know with addiction, um, and that was probably you know sort of the, the beginning of the the end for her. I don't think she ever was able to sort of come back from that. So
2: numerous questions come from that, uh, largely around sort of your own social development, because I, that's a really traumatic experience, I think, for anybody to not have a major parental figure, you know, specifically a mother, um, and then to, you know, see her sort of degrade as well as a sister at the same time. So I wonder, one, how you didn't become a victim of your environment? Like, how did you overcome your environment? Because I feel like there's always two versions of this story, right? There's the people who do become the product of their environment in a negative way, and then there are people who overcome their environment. So what do you think it is that enabled you to overcome the environment? And then talk to me specifically about what drives somebody to use fentanyl, because like my sister's a doctor and all I ever hear is how horrible it is, but I don't know what leads to it. And like, why would somebody who has mental health issues like turn to fentanyl things? What leads to that? Yeah. So to answer
1: your, your first question, maybe how, um why, where I've gotten to or what I've done in my life is anomalous (laughs) based on um, my background. Um, um, I think there are sort of two big steps here in my journey. Um, So early on, I had such a deep, uh, passionate, like fierce desire, need to get out. Um, And I think I was fortunate that I had a very loving uh, father who supported me and uh, gave me a lot of affection and encouragement. And I was, uh, sort of good at school, uh, at a really young age and a lot of encouragement as well as I played football for 12 years. And so I ended up sort of putting my head down in school and graduating, uh, think valedictorian, was captain of the science Olympiad team, captain of academic decathlon. Um, you know, uh, played football, I guess that for 12 years and playing a little bit in college. Um, I ended up going to college on a, uh, Ivy really League college on a full scholarship. I was the uh, same scholarship that Elon Musk got to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, the Warren School of Business. Um, and so I think that was like a really important sort of first step to get to a place where I uh, sort of wasn't going to end up like um, in my, my mother and my sister. Um, but to your point, I think it took me a while to realize I didn't grow up in a really dramatic environment. Um, I often get asked about the scar that I have. Uh, on my neck, a little red scar, like right below my neck, above my sternum. Um, and the reality is like, the way I got the scar was when I was probably about 12 years old, my mom just stabbed me with a butter knife um, for no reason. She was just in like a psychotic, schizophrenic uh, you know, episode. Um, and I think at the time I had just sort of pushed all this stuff aside. It's like, yeah, it was a crazy background. Um, yeah, it was um, really challenging, but you know, I'm really strong and I got through it. Uh, when I was in college, I uh, sort of happened into studying cognitive science and behavioral science, which led me to positive psychology uh, and positive psychology is um, University of Pennsylvania where I went is uh, had some sort of top leading professors and thinkers in positive psychology at the time. We've had a lot
2: of them guests and I remember one of them was like, yeah, the UPenn psychology is like uh, positive psychology department is like a happiness Olympics.
1: Yeah. And I just stumbled into it. Like, I was just interested in, I was in, actually interested initially in behavioral economics, from reading Freakonomics in high school. So that led me to behavioral economics, which led me to cognitive science, which led me to positive psychology. And as I started studying and reading positive psychology, uh, I had this epiphany that I was not happy <laughs> and that all the decisions I was making to be very achievement focused and very selfish um, were not going to make me happy. You know, I had a lot of, I was very tribal. I had a lot of conflicts with the people around me. Um, I got in a lot of like street fights. Um, I um, had a very pessimistic outlook on people in the world. I didn't like people. I didn't like meeting people. I didn't like parties. Uh, I thought I was going to need to like get mine, uh, which I think was a coping and defense mechanism from, you know, growing up around, you know, people who weren't able to take care of themselves, much less me. Um, and so as I started reading about this, I realized I needed to make some changes because, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a tech entrepreneur by uh, craft, but I think I'm like a scientist by philosophy. <laughs> um, and uh, that's one of the things that led me to psychedelics. Uh, so when I was about you know, 20 years old, I did uh, psychedelics for the first time, MDMA 1st, and then soon after psilocybin. Uh, and it was completely, as you hear from a lot of people, and sounds exaggerated, but it's the reality, simply life-changing for me. Um, very quickly uh catalyzed the massive transformation in me and how I uh, related and connected to others, uh, turned me very quickly from a pessimist into an optimist and a humanist. Um, and you know, helped me get through, I think, a lot of these traumas that I had dealt with and sort of experienced um in a way that made me And we start to become a much healthier person for myself and for the people around me.
3: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Well, let's one talk about what leads somebody to fentanyl, but also Mm -hmm. one thing i Really curious about is is how media shapes perception. I mean, as a media creator, because if I saw if I heard the resume version of what you just told me, valedictorian, football player, you know, Ivy League scholarship, I would have never in a million years you guessed that you came from the background that you did. The two are that there's been such conflict for me. You came from this like Indian family where you know I'm the son of a called professor, and being an overachiever is just the expectation. Um, so talk to me about that aspect of it as well, because like. People that you were in school with know this. I mean, like, I would never guess the high school valedictorian headed to an Ivy League school and a full scholarship comes from a family of addicts.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, Buck's friends like to talk about how where I grew up in, uh, Anaheim, California, or was, we called it Anacrime, Crime, is, um, mm-hmm. is a rough neighborhood to say the least. Um, yeah, yeah my, my dad's from, con- from, what
2: far from me. Where'd you grow up? I'm in Riverside cool yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. um he's gonna have uh, uh, Raging Waters There's all the time the water park <laughs>
0: yes, Raging
2: Waters Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure every time I see Raging Waters I always think of San Dimas High
1: School <laughs> um um and so uh, yeah I grew up in a really rough neighborhood um and um bars on my are you know, our, our, our windows in the condominium um and I tell people about that they're like yeah, yeah that makes sense so, yeah, I get you you know grew up like working class not like you know sort a lot of us. Um, I remember one time, my um, my now wife, who is also the head of engineering at our company, MindBlue. Blue. Um, we've been here for about fourteen years. Met in college. Uh, she was visiting um, my dad, who still lives in the condo that I grew up in. And we got into an Uber, and the the Uber driver picks us up. Is like a tough looking dude. He's like catted up, uh, like do rag. Like he's like he, he looks like a tough guy. And okay, I started chatting with him. And I'm like, oh, do you drive her, do you like drive around here often? He turns around. He's like, I try not to. See. This is like a really rough neighborhood. And I said, that's from tr- <laughs> my wife, like told you. like i <laughs> just in saying it. So okay, okay. Um, um so yeah, it does surprise people. Um I mean people, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm half Jewish, so half Irish. Like, so you see how I look and where I come from, and uh people definitely assume, um, you know, that that i um, yeah, like everybody else. It was actually, to be honest, it was, um, it was a big culture shock for me when I went to college. I almost transferred out of uh, you know, the Warren School of Business, at UPenn, because I just felt like a fish out of water. Uh, even though physically, I looked like everybody else. Um, um, except maybe the clothes I was wearing, which were from you know, TJ Maxx, not, and Marshalls, not, uh, you know, uh, sort of Ralph Lauren and Brooks Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, I, I felt like I was from a completely different world and understand where they came from, uh, what they talked about, um, and, um, I actually, we, I think we were talking earlier, um, before we you know, sort of started, um, you know, the interview here that, um, I listened to an episode earlier with one of your previous guests, Simone Stolzoth, um, who wrote a, a really, uh, incredible book on sort of, uh, the relationships with work. Uh, he was a fraternity brother of mine in college and, um, getting into a, uh, this fraternity where I was able to sort of connect with people who are radically different than me. Um, but really, sort of high-quality humans uh, was a major catalyst for my sort of uh, development there.
2: So two things, you know, to, to come back to both your mother and your sister, um, mm-hmm. why would fentanyl be a attempt to treat mental health? And the other question that comes from that, you were pretty young when all this started to happen. So at, at what point did you realize this is actually a mental illness? It's not, I have a mother who's awful. Like where do you to make that distinction? Because at that age, I can't imagine even trying to process that. Yeah. So I'll
1: I'll start with that, then we can talk about fentanyl. Um and that was actually one of the major sort of breakthroughs I had that um the really psychedelic medicine also helped me with and also sort of a deep uh sort of exploration study of Buddhism and uh, meditation. Um so Growing up, I think one of the mindsets I had that helped me for a while, and then over time I needed to get to another level, uh, was understanding that, like, that having having like a uh, by me mentality instead of a to me mentality. Uh, one of the things that's on my sister, for instance, actually wrote my, uh, one of my college entrance sessions on this was that um, she had a very to me victim mentality about the situation my mother. So every all of her problems and her issues with drugs and her issues with authority, which I had similar ones, were not her fault. She was a victim of her circumstances um, and couldn't do anything about it. Uh, whereas early on, I think I developed a buy-me mentality that things could happen by me, that I have an internal locus of control and a lot of agency and despite getting dealt what a lot of people, at least in the US, would consider a challenging hand, um, you know, I could play that hand as best as I could. Um yeah. and so, you know, for instance, um when and but, but I still had, it, I think, at that time, I know I had at that time just a tremendous amount of anger directed towards her, which of course affected how much anger I had towards everybody. <laughs> um I remember the, the the sort of story I had that led into the, uh, you know, sort of the, the moral lesson about having a buy me mentality uh, for my college entrance essay was I was at football practice uh, and I was captain of the team at the time and the police came out. We were probably about, you know, almost a hundred guys on our team. It's you know, Southern California football. It's like a, it's a big program. And I turned to one of my teammates who sold weed and was like, oh, you like, you think they're coming for you? I think, Do you want me to like, you know, stress? i give you a head start. Um, and they come over and they talk to my coaches and the coaches look over perplexed and, and signal to me. And I think they're gonna like ask for my help with something. And I walk over and they grab me, turn me around and cuff me in front of my entire team and take me in. And, and the story was that my mother had called the police and told them that I had run her over in our family's car which was 100% you know, fabricated. It was, again, something that happened to her in like a you know, delirious hallucination, most likely. And it took like hours for them to get a hold of my father while they're just yelling at me and grilling me, and calling me a liar. i seen this many times. Um, and so I think from experiences like that, uh, I was, and I sort of didn't have yet the emotional or social or psychological sort of maturity and perspective. Um, I was able to sort of use that anger to fuel me to maybe achieve in, like, a traditional sort of uh, materialistic sense. Um, But I had tremendous amounts of anger and resentment still. Uh, And it wasn't until later that I came to really deeply understand that it wasn't her fault. Like, of course, she didn't want to be violent and miserable and homeless for 15 years and eventually, you know, die of an overdose, like, like, literally in an alley behind a hotel in L.A., Um, she was super super sick and it's incredibly tragic and that tragedy destroyed her life and it destroyed my sister's life and you know it in a lot of ways destroyed my father's life and a lot of the people around us um and I still see and say my father you know he hasn't yet sort of I think come to terms with that and still harbors a lot of anger and resentment for what our family could have been um and what our lives could have been like if she had been healthier um
2: Well, let, let's get to the the root of this. I mean, so we go from fentanyl to you know psychedelics. We talk to me, fentanyl in particular, because like mm-hmm. I said, um, you know I only know a little bit about it from what my sister has told me since she's a doctor, uh, and she's like, this is like one of the most dangerous things you know around. So, because based on the sort of media I've consumed about fentanyl, I would have never associated it with with something that people use for mental health purposes, or is it just something people start using uh, and just become addicted?
1: Um, fe- So, overdose deaths in the U.S. have 5X'd in the last 20 years, and fentanyl is a major driver of those. Um, there are, I think, a lot of reasons people use fentanyl. I think the primary reason is that it's cheap. It's cheap opiates. Um, and so, a lot of people are, who are using heroin will switch to fentanyl because it's so affordable. Um, if you look at, like, the lethal dose of fentanyl, for instance, it's like... A couple, like a few grains of sand. Um, and it's so small, it will blow your mind. Um, and a lot of people also are using fentanyl because they got addicted to pain pills, Oxycontin, for instance. Um, and then the supply was pulled from them. Uh, once we had, you know, the opioid ec- epidemic, and now they're seeking alternatives because they're addicted to painkillers on the street. Um, um, so my mother and my sister were different types of overdoses. Uh, my mother overdosed on methamphetamine laced with fentanyl. It was an accidental overdose in terms of the fentanyl being accidental or, or um, adulterated. Um, yeah. And then my sister uh, was actually quite frustrating um, in addition to tragic. You know, we just put her into a uh, very um, not affordable <laughs> 90-day inpatient rehab facility. And she came out, you know, ostensibly being um, really committed to not doing drugs for you know for the foreseeable future, um, and um, just a few weeks later, you know, intentionally did fentanyl and, and overdosed, uh, which is which is a common occurrence where somebody overdoses in rehab or overdoses right out of rehab because their body um, doesn't have the tolerance that it used to or is still recovering from the withdrawals uh, from from something like opioids and then, you know, they, 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 can't handle it. Um, So yeah, I was, you know, I was my, uh my father was the first person he, you know, as soon as he sort of found her body in, in her room, that was the first person he called and was on the phone with him when the, you know, paramedics got there, when the police who were not very sympathetic got there uh, and it was uh, quite
2: challenging. Well, let's talk... Uh, about your own experience with psychedelics, because so I was in college in the late nineties when ecstasy started to become really popular as sort of a party drug. And, you know, you know, I'd like I'd be lying if I told you I didn't make a fair share of it. And th- there was a point at which I realized I was like, if I don't stop, this is going to destroy me. But you have taken a, a different approach. And I feel like the approach now is, I mean, I'm sure that still goes on, but there's a fine line, I think, between recreational use of this stuff and therapeutic use. So, talk to me about sort of that fine line, and and how you get from you know that to actually being able to start a company uh, where we're talking about this for real therapeutic
1: use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually don't personally love the um, distinction between recreational and therapeutic. Um, from a like a use standpoint, the way I think about it is like escapism, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus called like enhancement. Um, so I think there are people who, um, you know, abuse, you know, uh, drugs cause they're trying to escape from something versus are using it to try to, you know, sort of improve their, uh, their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, depending on, you know, where we see like legalization efforts go, um, you know, the different levels of using something sort of in a way that's going to be a therapeutic, uh, even if it's not necessarily in like a clinical setting, but that's obviously not where we're at. The healthcare system today. (laughs) Um, So, the way that uh, MindBloom does it, uh, which is the largest provider of psychedelic therapy in the US, uh, we've done over 300,000 psychedelic therapy sessions since launching in 2019, is we do at home ketamine therapy, uh, which is today's only legally prescribable psychedelic therapy in the US. And we are prescribing it for people with anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're helping people not just anxiety, depression, uh, but an entire suite of different mental health care issues. Um, So we have or are about to launch programs uh, for all kinds of different health care issues that people can tackle, such as, uh, you know, alcohol use, grief, loneliness, um, uh, burnout, you know, finding purpose, uh, financial abundance, um, OCD, insomnia, PTSD, et cetera. we use a psychedelic therapy modality to try to help people and which we'll talk about. So successfully help people. I uh, get better clinical outcomes than if they just took the medicine by itself. Uh, and so that includes both psychiatric cares from a psychiatric clinician, a psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse practitioner. Uh, just like if you went into a psychiatrist's office, but all over zoom, uh, includes one on one and group. Uh, coaching from specialized coaches called guides uh, who are helping people prepare for, go through and integrate all of their experiences through a succession treatment program. Um, and each session itself is done with an eye shade and headphones on, with people really like, going inward for the one hour that they're experiencing uh, the ketamine therapy uh, with different music and programs uh, that guide them you know, throughout the experience. And so as a result, um, we have been able to get people significantly better clinical outcomes, uh, not just in legacy treatments like talk therapy or SSRI antidepressants, which 40 million Americans are on, uh, but even in-person ketamine clinics, uh, which are about uh, five times the cost. Um, Yeah.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better?
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Well, talk about the science behind this, because like my experience with psychedelics has always been that I definitely like am hallucinating like crazy, like I wouldn't be going anywhere doing anything, but from what I understand, you know, when we're talking about it from what you call an enhancement or therapeutic, this is all done in microdoses. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, So walk me to the science of why it works first. What is ketamine, you know, chemically doing to the brain that leads to these positive outcomes versus, say, an SSRI? Yeah. So...
1: One is that the in terms of the mechanism of action, um, the simplistic uh, sort of explanation would be that ketamine, as well as other psychedelics like LSD, uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, uh, is creating a state of neuroplasticity in the brain. Uh, And so neuroplasticity uh, means your brain is more easily able to create new pathways uh, or essentially to rewire itself um, and so for some people if you put them into a neuroplastic state the brain will just rewire itself in a healthier way uh, so if you have depression then you have these pathways that are um, sort of ruminative and negative and bad and often past looking, anxiety is similar but it's like future looking and you know more sort of um, you know, sort of anxious and constricted, uh, addiction similar, OCD similar, trauma similar. Uh, they're all sort of these ruminative disorders where people are repeating the same patterns. If you help people prepare for, go through, and then process the experiences afterwards, uh, oftentimes you're able to leverage that neuroplastic state to help people get even more of the treatment and to sort of better rewire their brain such that they'll have Uh, healthier, you know, uh, sort of emotional patterns, behavioral patterns, um, that will, you know, sort of persist as well as, you know, sort of create an upward spiral of behavioral mental health. Yeah.
2: What about people who don't necessarily have mental health issues per se? Because I know that this is also common sort of Silicon Valley thing, right? Like microdosing mushrooms, big thing. I know Tim Ferriss and Michael Pollan have both, you know, talked and written about it. Um, what about that aspect of it? Like, do you
1: see that as well? Yeah, I guess first I should say that it's it's explicitly micro-dosing. Um, so we, so mind limbs providers, we have about 250 medical providers treating patients in 38 states, reaching 85% of Americans today. Uh, they are starting people at a low dose and then titrating them up over their pr- treatment programs to the therapeutic dose that's helping them get the best possible outcomes. Uh, for some people, that might feel like a microdose. For most, uh, it's closer to like a meaningful, you know, therapeutic dose that feels distinctly uh, psychedelic for a lot of people. Uh, and same in like a lot of the research that's going on around psilocybin assisted therapy, which is um, um, currently, I, I believe, just finished phase two clinical trials and is entering phase three clinical trials, the last phase of clinical trials right now. Um, yeah. the dose they're providing people, there are a few different ones, uh, but they are like distinctly, you know, meaningful doses <laughs> that are, that I, I would think would not really qualify as a, uh, as a micro uh, which is usually like called 10 to 25% of a full dose. Yeah. Well, so
2: let's talk about, um, the regulatory issues around this because, th- I think probably you'd have to give us a bit of a history lesson of how we got here in the first place with the fact that all this stuff was illegal. I mean, I've seen a few of the documentaries around DMT and I remember, I think it was kind of Rick Doblin or something who had said, he's like, you know, people in the hospital, he was a, he was a doctor. He said, if you, you told people back then that you were doing research on psychedelics, they would look at you like you were out of your mind. Um, I have a feeling that that's not the entire story that capitalism and big pharma played a big role in putting us here.
1: Uh, I think there, there are a lot of different hypotheses. Uh, so the prevailing viewpoint is that um, the Nixon administration passed the Controlled Substances Act, um, which you know, gave you know, the, the DEA essentially power to start regulating um, what drugs can be prescribed, what drugs can't be prescribed. Uh, which is also um, something that sort of gets agreed to by the F- with the FDA when a drug is approved schedule one, two, three, et 3, etc. And so schedule 1 drugs are drugs that are considered to have no medical purpose and like a high risk of like addiction or abuse. Um, so at this time, there is a you know, huge backlash against psychedelics, potentially driven by a lot of the sort of narrative and sticks around the counterculture movement of the 60s uh, that put them squarely into this extremely, you know, no medical use, very dangerous camp. Um, and then once the drug is in Schedule 1, it becomes so hard to research it because it's illegal. Um, and so at that point, all of the research came to a grinding halt. Uh, and it took you know decades now for the research to get kicked back up again. And then once the research did, it was very clear from all of the clinical research and, and academic research uh, that these psychedelic medicines have tremendous therapeutic effects. Uh, both MDMA and psilocybin have been designated breakthrough therapies by the FDA, which is an incredibly rare designation. It says this is so effective and so important given how bad existing treatment options are that we have to fast track this. Uh, and the Biden administration has also um, uh, essentially put out a... Um, you know, sort of a, a, a letter of commitment to fast track these drugs um, and you know, it's sort of a, a bipartisan uh, issue of both sides of the aisle. Want to bring these to veterans, bring these to addicts, you know, where we're in a mental health care crisis and we're losing it every day. Um, but that did take a long time and, you know, and also over that time built a ton of stigma, which is also slowing down patient adoption and provider adoption uh, given that look at the actual clinical research. You see that a lot of these medicines are 10x better products that would exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I so know I
2: have taken my, I took antidepressants for almost two and a half years. Uh, after a really, you know, just break up, made a mess of my head. And I still remember this day of well, one of my friends said, like, well, how did you stop? And it's like, I, don't, I was on a surf trip and I was surfing like six hours a day and I forgot to take it. And by the time I was done with the surf trip, I was like, you know what? I don't need these anymore. Um, so I guess that, that for me segues into the next question. I remember Naveen Jain, we had him here. This always stayed with me. He said he was on call with the CEO of a farmer company and that CEO said, you know, the best drug we can make is something that somebody has to take for the rest of their life. It's the ultimate subscription business. When, <laughs> when you think about somebody's mental health, the idea of treating it like a Netflix subscription is pretty fucking horrifying. Um, and so I wonder, you know, like... What point does it stop? Because like, I, I'm hoping based on your research and the work that you guys done, the whole point is that like, it does what it's supposed to do and you don't need it anymore.
1: I had, a, I think when we were raising our um, series A round of funding a few years ago, I had a very, very prominent minus list venture capital investors, quite famous, um, say, hmm, this all makes a lot of sense to me. The thing I just can't really get is based on all the clinical outcomes that you have here, which we just published last summer in the largest peer-reviewed clinical study in 70 years of psychedelic therapy and 20 years of ketamine therapy history, demonstrating that uh, our at-home ketamine therapy protocol and uh, with psychedelic therapy around it is literally the best treatment for anxiety depression that's ever existed. He um, was like, based, based on this, it looks like um, you're gonna cure a lot of people and then you're not gonna have recurring revenue. Is that right? <laughs> well, people's mental health care journeys are very dynamic. People go through a lot during their life, right? You might be okay, but then you have your you know death in the family. You might be okay. And then you, you know, have an issue with addiction. But yeah, in general, this is going to put a lot of people into remission and they're not going to have to get a recurring drug like you necessarily have anxiety med. And he's like, hmm, well, doesn't that seem like that's going to be like bad for business because eventually you're going to like, I've cured everybody. <laughs> Yes. I mean, like, uh,
2: question when you think about it from the pure numbers standpoint, like in my mind, that's exactly what I'm thinking as you're saying this.
1: I mean, yeah, except for how big the problem is, right? Yeah. Like we have what a quarter of Americans have a diagnosable mental illness. Um, yeah. And that's just now, not their whole lives. Uh, we have 40 million Americans on Estes Arise. Um, yeah. As I mentioned, suicide overdose are the top two leading causes of death for Americans under 45. Um, And it's problems getting worse. So if you can solve the number one public health crisis, there's probably some alpha in there that makes it worth your (laughs) while. Even if uh, you don't, even if you're just curing it. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would want to be the company that comes up with a cure to cancer, even if it puts chemotherapy out of business.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So we started this conversation talking about accessibility, uh, mental health. And it's kind of funny because like I'd always had health insurance and despite being depressed, it took like just going off the deep end until I finally got myself into a therapist office. It was, I was 36. Um, and I went once in college, even though we had free access to it. Uh, and I never went back and I don't know why to this day. Cause if I had known that, I was like, man, I would absolutely have not just used it. I would have abused it. Uh, so talking about the accessibility issues here, like how do we, ma- how do you make this accessible when we're talking about people that come from, from the kinds of backgrounds that you do? Because if I remember correctly, when I looked at the subscription price or the or cost for this, I thought to myself, okay, this is, even for me, who is not from the backgrounds that you're talking about, I was like, okay, this is a little bit crazy. Um, so talking, about, like, one, what you guys are doing for accessibility, and then the role that government has to play in, this in terms of subsidizing it and making it accessible?
1: Yeah. Um, so when I, when I started Mindbloom, uh, this was late 2018, I was, it was very serendipitous. I wanted to do something for my third company, specifically in mental health care, because of everything we've discussed today. <laughs> um, two, I lo- was really looking at opportunities in telemedicine uh, because I was fortunate to have some friends who had built some very large telemedicine companies. Uh, so two of my fraternity members from college, um, one is the CEO of Pims and Hers, uh, and the other started a company called Candid, which is a very large direct-to-consumer Invisalign company. Uh and so I had sort of learned about those models and was really bullish on how that could help increase access to some mental health care services, uh, given that. I grew up in a family that was paycheck to paycheck, and knew how expensive and hard it was to access mental health care for us. I kept coming back to psychedelic medicine as the thing that both changed my life and the thing that um, I just saw that sort of the future is already here, just not evenly distributed. Uh, but I thought it was too early. Uh, fortunately, I was at lunch uh, with my personal doctor at the time in New York City, where I was living, uh, who was also a fraternity brother from college, and he, I was telling him about all of this um, and some ideas and he blew my mind when he told me he was prescribing ketamine therapy uh, and I, I thought I had my finger to the pulse of psychedelic medicine, was donating to psychedelic research, it was uh, one of my biggest personal passions and hobbies and intellectual curiosities um, and I, I still didn't know that ketamine therapy was available uh, for Americans today he prescribed it to me showed up on my doorstep I was just his Powerful as a lot of other psychedelic medicines I had tried that had been transformational for me. Uh, but I saw, and I saw as clear as day. And, you know, there was a huge issue here for why people like me and other people didn't even know about it, but just could access it. One is at the time it was like a thousand dollars a session to go into a ketamine clinic, despite the fact that ketamine itself is extremely cheap. Two, the stigma around ketamine is very, very high. Right. You talk about ketamine to most people and they'll say, oh, the horse tranquilizer. Ketamine, ketamine that's is- That's what I learned. <laughs> like, yeah. That's literally the exact phrase that I was taught when I was in college. It was what I thought it was and I was donating to psychedelic science and research, right? Like that's how deep the stigma was. Um, and, um, and the reality is the ketamine is on the World Health Organization's list of the 100 most essential medicines in the world. It's like the safest anesthetic that exists. And so it's used in every hospital and ER room every single day, especially on children, <laughs> um, because they, they tolerate it, um, well, it, and it doesn't like depress breathing and your heart rate. Um, and, um, and a lot of ketamine clinics, people don't have access to them. Uh, so 160 million Americans already le- live outside of treatment coverage areas in behavioral health. And so like ketamine, or there's just you know, a handful of clinics around the country, largely metropolitan areas. Well, if you're in rural America, you have no access to ketamine clinics. Um, so I saw clear as day that there's an opportunity to help dramatically increase access to these medicines uh, by lowering the cost, get available to, all, you know, most, if not all Americans through telemedicine and uh, do a lot of the work to accelerate educating patients and providers about how clinically effective ketamine is both in terms of the efficacy, but also the safety. I uh, like ketamine uh, will give a side effect to somebody uh, 10% as frequently as SSRIs. And the side effects are much milder than SSRIs. Uh, so you're talking about a drug and it's like 10 times safer than SSRIs. And amount of adverse events that people experience is also much lower. Um, but obviously people don't know that. And you know, that's not the, the first thing people think about when they think about
2: ketamine therapy. Um, So how do you deal with this stigma issue? Like what needs to be done to destigmatize this? And then what about big pharma? Like, cause I think I, I alluded to the fact you know, before we hit record that I remember very distinctly reading in Michael Pollan's book and you alluded to it when you're talking about the investor as well, that they're going to fight this because like, why would you, you know, basically say, okay, we can either prescribe an SSRI for somebody that they have to take for the rest of their life or we're done in three sessions, which I mean, that poses a huge threat to companies that make billions of dollars.
1: Uh, So first question, what's it going to take to really bend the curve on eliminating the sort of ignorant stigmas around ketamine and other psychedelic medicines? I think there are three things. Um, So the first is what you and I are doing right here, which is um, having people and encouraging people to have the courage. It's, you know, it's a big step to go out and publicly talk about doing psychedelics, Uh, but to have the courage to raise their hand and to speak up and say that I've used these medicines and they've been really meaningful and impactful for me. Uh, We've seen tremendous progress toward around people sharing uh, their mental health care stories to yeah, reduce the stigma around talking about and working on mental health. Uh, we still have a long way to go in that area, and especially a long way to go around psychedelic medicines. Uh, and so, example are like, I don't think I start Mind Bloom if it wasn't for Tim Ferriss speaking openly and publicly about it. Uh, he was someone I really respected, and you know, was following. Um, And seeing him have the cojones (laughs) to uh, speak very publicly about his experiences with his mental health challenges and his experience using psychedelics um, was a major driver for me feeling comfortable saying, okay, I will, you know, put my reputation and sort of, uh, you know, everything on the line to speak publicly about this. Um, The second is, uh, you know, not just sort of... um, You know, people with some, with platforms discussing their experiences, but everyday patients, uh, sharing their experiences. Uh, and a big focus of, of us, of, um, of our team at MindBloom, uh, is essentially building what we call an evangelist engine. Uh, we found that the number one issue or the number one blocker for people trying ketamine therapy is fear. And the number one thing that helps people overcome fear is hearing. From other people they know and trust, uh, that they've tried it and that they got outcomes. Yeah. Best would be hearing from your trusted, you know, parents, you know, sibling, best friend around the dinner table. Uh, you know, next is hearing from someone you trust, like, you know, you follow like Tim Ferriss. And then the third for me and the third would be, um, you know, hearing another patient's story you don't know or someone, you know, exactly like you dealing with the exact same issues with the exact same fears and anxieties had a breakthrough and got the exact results that you're hoping for. Um, So an aspirational goal would be, um, you know, sort of an aspirational philosophical goal would be if every American uh, had heard that there was someone doing the exact same issues as them, you know, who sort of um, has similar life circumstances and then got outcomes from ketamine therapy, you know, that's what we're trying to achieve there. Uh, and then the third is uh, through our research, we've also uncovered that while there's a proliferation of uh, direct-to-consumer platforms and providers uh like Mindbloom, like you mentioned, saw us on Instagram, <laughs> uh 75% of behavioral health patients will only consider a treatment they learn about from their provider, like not from an Instagram ad. Uh, and so we really want to bend the curve. You know, those providers are incredibly trusted as they should be advisors to their patients. Um, and so at believe, we've actually uh, rolled out, um, because we keep being asked by medical providers, um, a sort of platform and program to enable psychiatric providers in primary care physicians to add on ketamine therapy to their practice with us supporting them. Uh, so rather than our providers prescribing, they're prescribing. And we're providing all of the, um the you know, fulfillments, our bloom box that we send people with all the uh, things they need to do, psychedelic therapy around ketamine therapy, you know, the mobile app, the coaches, uh, et cetera.
2: What about, like, in terms of uh, government? Like, what challenges do we have there that we still have to overcome in terms of regulation and, of course, dealing with big pharma? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, we... Uh, recently had several hundred clients write in letters, uh, to, uh, the government. Um, and we spent, you know, months going out and talking, uh, to, you know, um, you know, sort of rounds up to a hundred, uh, different people in the Senate, Congress, and the administration, uh, to make sure that the government understands that mental health is the largest public health crisis. Uh, there are treatments today that can make a dent in it, including ketamine therapy. Uh, and then it's incredibly important that patients and providers get to continue getting access to these treatments and be able to provide them through telemedicine. Um, so uh, today the government really backs and supports uh, the use of uh, ketamine therapy and the use of ketamine therapy with telemedicine. Um, uh the DA recently put out a proposed rule as the public health emergency ended, uh sort of dialing in that this would be something that they would be preserving um, as the public health emergency ends. Um so I think um it surprises people when they go and talk to members of you know the administration, Congress, Senate, how bipartisan both psychedelic medicine and specifically the medical health care crisis is. Uh it's very widely supported. And I think a big reason for that is i haven't met a single person since i started mind bloom who doesn't have a first degree separation from a serious mental health care issue either personally or a close family member or very close friend who hasn't completely been rocked if not lost to a mental health care issue and so we know that yeah we're losing the fight we know that w- what we have on the table to treat people today is not getting the job done you know uh we have treatments that work for, you know, mild pain or headache, right? You take, you take ibuprofen, it works, it works consistently and eliminates it. And we're not guessing or worried about it. Uh but that is not the case right now for the mental health crisis. Uh it's getting worse, not better. Uh so there is a you know sort of massive wave of support from the government, which is really encouraging to
2: see. I kind of like part of me wonders is this gonna be the end of companies like Johnson and Johnson that, you know, some of these huge pharma companies like that make drugs. Literally are designed to treat these. As you know, I I told you I did the math when I got hired by a pharmaceutical company. I was like, "Wow!" Based on my one medication I take, I was like, "These guys are printing money."
1: I mean, Johnson Johnson today is the largest uh, distributor of psychedelic medicine in the United States of America. <laughs> they um they have a drug called Spravato, uh which is uh, S ketamine. Essentially, ketamine comes out 50% S-ketamine, 50% R-ketamine. Uh, and So they patented the filtration process to get S-ketamine uh, and it's a uh, blockbuster drug for them that launched uh, in 2019 and is about to hit like a billion dollars a year in sales. Um, uh, the clinical outcomes are not as good as racemic ketamine. The price is 13 times higher than racemic ketamine uh, or, you know, so regular ketamine. Um, um, but you know, they have a massive pharmaceutical sales team, and they're getting patients some incredible outcomes with it. Um, but it's it's been tough for, do- for f- providers to adopt because it requires them to sort of fundamentally change how they practice. Because there's a two hour observation period, they have to hire specific staff and set up their office to enable it. Um, so it hasn't done as well as they'd hoped. But you know, the billion dollar drug, so it's not doing bad.
2: <laughs> I'm so- well, I want to finish this up by talking about two things you alluded to starting a couple of other companies prior to this. So, you know, given the, the background that you had, you know, where you grew up and, and kind of where you've ended up, with time and all the things that you've done, how has your own personal definition of success changed? And, and how does the way you think about money, uh, how has that evolved?
1: I went to um, Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within event with some friends one time. Um, which is just watching him sort of the price of admission alone. <laughs> um, but he had a definition of success that resonates for me, which is uh success is living life on your own terms and not giving a fuck what anyone else thinks. Um, excuse the language if that's not in the podcast. I'm directly quoting him. Um and I think that's 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 be my definition of success. I think success is like really understanding um well what it is that one Uh, sort of wants to get out of this infinitesimally short life um, and organizes their priorities around that. Uh, I think Ray Dalio has a quote that's like, you can get anything you want, but you can't get everything you want. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I think that holds true. Uh, And so for me, my personal definition for myself, not for others, um, uh, is that there are two things that I want. Uh, And this used to be in conflict for me where I'd have a lot of conflict between like try to pick one or the other but have over time realized I can have sort of a balance and, uh, and have boast. Um, one is that I want to make as large of a contribution or try to make and sort of put my energy into making, uh, a meaningful contribution back to, you know, the tribe. Uh, I think our ancestors lived in, you know, 75 to 150 person clans or tribes. Um, and everybody, it was, Generally contributing in some way, whether you're taking care of children or cooking or hunting or, you know, uh, crafting a, a pot. Um, you know, it's a contribution back, uh, which is essentially what our economy is. Um, and so, you know, having sort of the, the opportunity and privilege, uh, to get to apply my talents to try to make a meaningful contribution back to people. It's really, uh, sort of meaningful to me. Uh, and then the second thing, which is, you know, feels at odds is, uh, we only have like one life. And I'm trying to, like, squeeze every drop of, like, fun out of it that I can. <laughs> um, so, you know, I if I don't enjoy my work, then that's a problem. Or if I don't enjoy my relationships, that's a problem. Um, and so I'm sort of constantly working on how to uh, call it increase, like, the valence of my qualia in terms of how much enjoyment I'm getting.
2: Amazing. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is? That makes somebody or something unmistakable.
1: I often think about um building a remarkable product. Um and you know, really the bar for something remarkable is like clear. It's like it's it's so good that people remark on it. Um so to me, uh what makes someone unmistakable, um I'll just use the same definition, right? It's like something that uh is so unique and, uh, so, uh, sort of like clear, um, and inspiring that people can't help but remark on it.
2: Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more
1: about you, MindBloom, and
2: everything else you
1: How You can find MindBloom at mindbloom.com. Um, and, uh, Part of my own mental health and well being uh, routine or practice is I don't have uh, sort of social media. So the best place to follow me would be on LinkedIn, uh, which is about as uh, old school as he gets. Yeah. Amazing. And
2: for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,